0: so don't settle find love at first drive and start shopping now at carmax.com carmax the way car buying should be this is the hash podcast stay informed with the latest on bitcoin eth the metaverse web 3 and more with stories that matter to the crypto world all on the hash for your ears You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network.
1: Hello everyone. You are watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. And if you are listening to us on the go, you are listening to Coindesk's Podcast Network, the hash for your eyes and for your ears. We have the three box today. We got Will on one side of me. There's Will. And we got Adam on the other side and then me in the middle. I'm Jen. Will, you got our first story. The Elon saga continues. What?
2: If you're listening on the podcast, you probably already know about this as well. It's been all over the airwaves. Now we get to sit back and reflect on what a beautiful coup this was. Elon Musk has purchased Twitter that went through yesterday. There's a PR newswire that went out about the final transaction. The board accepted the price $54.20 with a nice little reference in there. A lot of people did not think this was going to happen. And now the Wall Street Journal has put out a a great piece summarizing the information that we have so far about what Elon did when he pulled this off. Essentially, Wall Street Journal goes into this and they say, like, at first, the board wasn't thinking that this was going to happen. He had tweeted out the SEC filing about perhaps purchasing Twitter. No one knew if this was real or not. And then he quickly assembled all the capital that he needed to be able to do this, including taking out a bunch of margin loans on his Tesla stock, which is actually pretty risky to be able to do something like that. He also got a lot of support from a lot of big bankers who backed up what he's saying, his financial advisors backed up the, the price for which he was willing to purchase it for. And Twitter had no option but to purchase it. And now what we're seeing on Twitter is a bunch of people getting called out for saying this would never happen. Just tons of little clips of people being like, Oh, Twitter will never accept this offer. But it happened. Adam, I'm going to throw it over to you for
3: your take. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting move, honestly. You know, there was a lot of skepticism about the uh, kind of willingness to accept this deal. I think in the end, Elon played it pretty well, and they kind of had no choice but to accept it. Otherwise, they would have exposed themselves to pretty significant liability. You know, when you're talking about the kind of board of directors of a publicly traded company, you're talking about people whose job it is to look after to, to be fiduciaries on behalf of the actual people who own the equity who are the people who actually own the company. And so one thing that was called out, interestingly, in the kind of earlier parts of this saga is that with Jack uh, Dorsey leaving the board when his term ends, there really would be no significant holdings of equity in the company represented on the board. And so it set up this kind of interesting thing where Musk has been very clear from the word go that he doesn't actually like the board and doesn't intend to retain the board. And so these are people who are well paid in their current positions and who, frankly, have a lot of power as a result of those positions. And they gain almost nothing from losing their jobs through this acquisition, given that they don't own much stock and they weren't going to be retained. So certainly they didn't want to accept it, but they were kind of trapped into it because otherwise, as I mentioned, they exposed themselves to liability. So I think that it's actually a really good move. I'm really happy to see that it's happening Uh, and I'm happy to see that this isn't being dragged out because there were questions about sort of the political nature of the board. Um, In terms of the way that the company as a whole has sort of purported itself over the last number of years, killing a number of stories that seemed like they were kind of partisan choices. So I'm happy to see this happen. Now, whether or not this is actually an improvement in terms of what we're going to get out of Twitter, you know, I mean, I've had a Twitter account for going on 10 years now, I guess a little bit longer than that, actually. And I haven't used the platform much for really five or six years at this point, because it has felt increasingly like a liability to do so. I don't think that's going to change under Elon Musk. I think that it might get to be a messier place. But ultimately, again, like, I think what we're really looking for in institutions these days is institutions that don't pick sides in the increasingly politicized world that we sort of live in today. And so if Musk, if all he does is just pull that back and make it so that the platform is neutral, you know, still reprehensible in lots of different ways, hosting lots of terrible opinions. But if he pulls it back towards that kind of born neutral, everybody can be terrible at the same time sort of path, then I think that there might actually be something here and it might wind up being a good decision. What do you think, Jen?
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like he's the CEO of Tesla, he's the CEO of SpaceX, he's the owner of the boring company, the owner of Neuralink. I just wonder how he's going to split his time and how he's going to focus his energies. You know, we've spoken a lot about. Um, what's already happened to get here. I'm interested to see what's going to happen moving forward and how Twitter's business model is going to change. 90% of Twitter's revenue comes from advertising. And if Elon starts making decisions on these really polarizing topics, I wonder how many advertisers are going to stay around on platform. And then to your point about the board, I wonder how many Twitter employees are going to hang around. You know, I think there's maybe going to be an internal shakeup at Twitter, There's going to be a shakeup with advertising if that business model changes. And I, I wonder how prepared Elon is for that and how stretched he is already. We talk about him funding this new venture. He's taking out a lot of debt. So I would imagine he has to keep that business model. He's accountable to the people who have issued this debt. So there are a few things I think that we are going to see play out that will be interesting to watch as we move forward. But Will, I saw your hand go up.
2: Yeah, we have to finish off the conversation by talking about Jack Dorsey's tweets last night about the whole situation. He said, "quote In principle, I don't believe anyone should own or run Twitter. It wants to be a public good at a protocol level, not a company. Solving for the problem of it being a company, however, Elon is the singular solution. I trust. I trust his mission to extend the light of consciousness." So, pretty esoteric tweet there, which is pretty on brand for Jack Dorsey as well. But I I think it. Has sparked some like rumors and some like some people are out there thinking, what's going on? Like, was this planned months ago? Did Jack Dorsey step down from Twitter with
0: Jack the intention
2: back. of Elon taking over at some point? Is Jack coming back? Is he coming back, baby? Is like Jack that would be pretty awesome. When it <laughs> that would be pretty great. That would be like talk about a comeback story. That would be pretty sick. So you know, I don't think this is over. In fact, I dare say we are in the beginning innings here. Just teen and off right now. We got much more to
3: see.
1: I love it. I love it. Adam, I think I saw your hand go up before we move over to the next topic.
3: The thing that I'm watching with all of this, you know, that, that comment from Jack Dorsey is interesting because I actually think I agree with that. I think that the platform as a whole, these platforms that are privately controlled, but which we conduct so much of our life on, when he talks about them being digital commons, what he's really talking about is he's talking about neutral spaces on the internet for people to express themselves. And the reason why we use platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, et cetera, Is because once you build network effect on one of these platforms, it's really, really hard to build something new that displaces it. It's kind of their game to lose. And so the idea that this could become that he actually mentioned as a protocol and the word protocol uh, harkens back to Twitter's blue sky project, which has been long promised and never actually rolled out. So, you know, this sort of dynamic of having billionaires that come in and buy media companies a lot of times I don't like it because the billionaires, again, they tend to abuse their privileges here. Jen, to your point, you know, the way that Elon's going to scale this is he's going to hire people. And if he hires the right people, then those people will be people who have that sort of global commons, you know, uh, neutrality type of viewpoint along with it. And that's very different than the company is right now. So as kind of all of this goes through, I completely agree with you, uh, Will, you know, this is the kind of beginning of a much longer story and it will be very interesting as we come up to the midterm elections i think uh, that's something that hasn't been discussed a lot but it actually plays in hugely here because twitter played a large role in the last election too especially with the censoring of the hunter biden story which has now been sort of acknowledged as actually being true despite the way that it was treated sort of at a very critical time so a very very interesting story interesting to see what musk is going to do but the nice part about billionaires is that they don't care about money And, you know, Jen, to your point with regards to he's taken out loans against this, he's taken out loans against his shares of Tesla equity, which is where he holds most of his money, which is actually a very uh, kind of intelligent way to do this, because it means that he doesn't have to sell his equity unless the loans actually go bad. And in the lead up to that, it means that he doesn't have to pay taxes in order to do this acquisition that is certainly going to be a feather in his cap, I think, no matter what winds up happening. Uh, Jen, you've got the next story
1: billionaires man all right we are moving on to nft land Ryan Carson the COO of Moonbirds has left the project to start his own nft venture fund and the community is not so happy about it so many have voiced their frustrations of the fact that Carson purchased hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of Moonbirds before leaving his collection is now worth 1.2 million dollars based on the floor prices uh, and people are just not happy. They're comparing this to, I guess, insider trading of sorts. Of course, when it comes to NFTs and crypto, there is nothing that really stops this. Adam, I see you shaking your head. What did you think when you read this story this morning?
3: You know, I think we're to the point of the cycle where I now hate any PFP projects. Uh, like, it doesn't really matter Welcome who's behind to it. to
1: Will's Club.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, you know... <laughs> Again, like moon, moon Birds, very derivative of Moon Cats, one of the earlier projects that we saw that at the time was not popular at all, but which then became popular kind of in retrospect uh, as a result of all the attention around these as people go hunting for what are the early precursors of it. Uh, you know, I was there in the early days of a lot of these projects. And by early days of a lot of these projects, I mean like 2014, 2015, 2016 type of era, And it was still all speculative mania at that point, too. But today, the speculative mania has become so commercialized. And it's just to the extent that you have reputation and an audience and you're willing to capitalize on that in order to convert it into lots and lots of money through one of these projects. Like, we're just seeing higher and higher profile people do it. And on the one hand, it's great because... You know, it means that you are able to, as a person like Kevin Rose, convert that fame, which gives you access to lots of things and probably access to deals and lots of ways to make money, but you're able to convert it directly into money. But at the end of the day, what are these things? These things are all communities that are attempting to figure out what to do with the fact that they are communities. And when we talk about these projects in the context of floor prices, we're really talking about these projects in the context of, What's the lowest that someone is willing to sell based on the current dynamics of the project? But as we know, that's a lot like looking at, you know, a cryptocurrency, a smaller cryptocurrency out there and measuring it by market cap. Right. In reality, that's not at all the value of the project. The value of the project is some order of magnitude or five lower, because as the price goes down, all those people who would have bought at that price are like, actually, no, never mind. I'm not going to do that. So again, like there's like five levels of this that I'm super skeptical and eye about. It's, uh, it's another day in the world of NFTs.
1: <laughs> we brought up that exact same point, Adam, on the show when we were talking about the Bored Ape Yacht Club, the most recent social media hack. Will brought up that exact same point. It's like, how do you really measure this? What is going on? And even I must say, I am getting a little sick and tired of, of hearing about these projects. But Will, what did, you, what did you think when you read this story this morning?
2: I mean, it's the same thing as the one yesterday, right? Like another person just flew the coup just to just to throw a little pun in there for the day. I think like overall, this this NFT space, people don't seem to care about getting rugged. They don't seem to, to mind it at all. Even the language from the CEO of Moonbirds, he said, I think one of the special things about Web3 is we can be transparent and share and learn from each other. I can tell you that there's going to be kind of communications policy put in place moving forward as well. That's not really the strong rhetoric or language that you would expect from someone who's very serious about a project. Like just saying we're going to share and learn after your COO dumps on the project or like takes someone to the project and and goes somewhere else. He didn't dump, but he did take a bunch of these moonbirds and, and leave and go somewhere else. You would expect a little bit more fire, right? You'd expect a little bit more ire and be like, Hey, actually, I want you to care about this because it's a real project. It's a legitimate thing. There's a lot of money here, but it doesn't seem to be very serious and people don't seem to care. Again, from my point a few weeks ago, I think it's just because people are here to get that pop off whenever there, there is one. They want that one in the hundred projects, that one in a thousand projects know that only about 5% of their portfolio is actually going to be in the green and the rest of it is just red. You don't look at it. Look away. It's okay if it's a war zone. It doesn't matter. Moonbirds happened to be one that did really, really well. And so I don't think people at this point, they don't care that he left. Like As long as Moonbirds keeps being successful, they don't care. They just want the money to keep going in. Uh, Adam, give it to you for your final thoughts though. So.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that you, I think you really just nailed it there again. Like We're at the part of this, like a year ago, today, you know, like you would be able to look at projects and be like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. They're trying something that's kind of new. And there wasn't this sort of this backlog of projects that had just kind of done the same thing. And I think at this point, what you have is on both sides. You have people who are creating these projects who are trained by what they see in the market to deliver projects that are what they see as being successful in the market using whatever amplifiers they can. And similarly, I think the people that they're selling these to are people who aren't like, oh my god, I really want a moonbird. There are people who are like, yeah, this seems like it could work, right? And so again, like in that type of dynamic, you've got basically—it's not an accurate statement, but it feels like liars telling lies to other liars about their lies, right? <laughs> and so it's like, who do you feel bad for in this situation? I feel bad for me. I feel bad for us because we have to talk about stuff like this when in reality it's <laughs> gamblers gambling. <Exactly>. And that's <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, well like written, but it's about moonbirds. <laughs> Is this really how we need to spend our time in in the world? Given everything that's yes. going on, it it doesn't seem it's like it to me. A very serious but, business, Adam. Yeah, we <laughs> need <laughs> to, continue that to cover these that. stories.
1: <laughs> if we feel bad for anyone, it is us.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. So with that, uh, let's 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 go into our final story of the day. Uh, so in yet another step in what I like to call Bitcoin's road to boring, earlier today, Fidelity Investments announced that later this year individuals uh, who manage their 401k retirement accounts through the firm will be able to invest directly into bitcoin that's not futures that we're talking about like etfs but actual bitcoin that's going to be custodied by apparently a fidelity platform which is a big deal kind of in and of itself but goes a little bit under the radar i think in this story so this is again a story that i think is actually pretty important because fidelity holds an estimated 2.4 trillion dollars in 401k assets as of two years ago So, you know, again, like as we get towards this, hey, Bitcoin is something that is boring enough, you'd put it in your retirement account and you have a big company like this coming on board. You know, I mean, this feels to me like the first, not the last one of these stories we're going to be talking about. What do you think, Will?
2: Really interesting story. For as much as Bitcoin is boring, this is important. So like, do take note of it. Maybe we should have started off the show because this is actually like actual real news and information. But we save the boring and good stuff for last here on the hash. So always stick around. Fidelity has been in the Bitcoin game for quite a while. They had you know, Nick Carter, like the Fidelity gang is what it's known as. There's a bunch of um, Amanda Fabianos out there. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of ex-Fidelity folk who moved into Bitcoin mainstream, whether doing VC work or mining or working on the data side. It's all there. Fidelity got there first with a lot of this Bitcoin stuff. And I think that's why you see them being more comfortable with rolling out a product like this. Because they did the time. They did the time on the R&D side a few years ago, and now they're ready to do it. The thing that gets interesting for me is seeing like where Fidelity as like a giant player in the space starts matching up against some of the other incumbents within the crypto space. So I'm talking about the CoinBases of the world, the NIDIGs of the world, the same sort of financial folk who are trying to build similar projects, similar applications for people who want to have boring money, in their bank account, they want to add Bitcoin in there and just let it sit, let it accumulate interest. And there's going to be a rush pretty soon here, if not already happening, for these products to go live and for them to start grabbing customers and bring them into their accounts. I think Fidelity getting in there with how large of an asset manager it already is spells trouble for a lot of the the bigger players in the crypto space, like your Coinbase's and like your Nidex. I don't think like it's game is lost by any means. But you're going to have to see some step up in competition, some sort of new incentives to get people into the game, into these, these crypto incumbents that are very new to the traditional world, that are, that are new to people who are have no idea what crypto is about. But Jen, let's hear your take.
1: Yeah, I thought this was a great story as well. We probably should have started the show off with this story. I think it's a great way for investors to gain exposure to Bitcoin who maybe are feeling a little apprehensive about going to an exchange. I love that they're creating educational material for their investors. You know, I think the type of person who is going to opt for this would need that educational material because that's where the barrier lies. So I like that they're making it very comfortable for people to play in the space, even though for us, you know, it sounds kind of boring. What I took away from the story was that just last month, the US Labor Department warned against holding crypto in 401ks. And I know we're, we always talk about regulation and how it's slowing down innovation, but this was such a good sign for me to, to see that last month there was this warning and Fidelity still launched the product this month with no mention of that and they're moving full steam ahead. And so I think, I think it's just a really positive sign for crypto and Bitcoin. I'll pass it back to you, Adam.
3: Yeah. So we talk about Bitcoin as a sort of quasi-inflation hedge. And you know, I always like to correct people whenever I can to say that it's not actually a short-term inflation hedge. It's a systemic disruption hedge. It's an alternative that in a world that is looking beyond the US dollar as the global reserve currency, well, you're going to have to pick something else because we need to have a common form of value that we can measure and effectively do global trade in. You know, without something like Bitcoin, you're basically looking at picking a regional currency, you know, a Russian Chinese, uh, you know, type of currency union or maybe something that winds up having different sort of reserves in different parts of the world. The reason why that happens is because when you have a reserve currency system, if there's a country that issues that reserve currency, as the U.S. currently does, then it offers pretty incredible advantages that throughout the course of history, which goes back many hundreds of years. We have yet to see go without being abused at some point in time. Uh, And so Bitcoin offers something of an alternative to that. So from that perspective, it's, again, not surprising to see the U.S. government saying, actually, this is definitely a thing you don't want to hold for the long term, while at the same time seeing a firm that's charged with giving clients advice on what is a good long term bet saying, hey, this is actually something that if you wanted to put it into your retirement account, well, it's just as good as all these other things that we've got here. And from my perspective, that's the important part is that, you know, the biggest sort of challenges around trying to manage an asset and your investments in an asset like Bitcoin is that there are so many wild swings that the temptation to be emotional about it and to sell when the price is going down to protect your investment or to buy when the price is going up to make sure that you're not missing out on what could be the next big thing, but is probably just the latest incarnation of the bubble. Well, sometimes it's nice to have that friction. The people who I know in this space who have made the absolute most money off of crypto have done it by going to India and being offline for nine months during which time they would have sold had they you know, been present, but by nature of being you know, gone. So I like to call this the coma uh, strategy, right? The best thing that you can do with an investment in Bitcoin, if you look back historically, is you just act like you're in a coma and don't even know that the thing Mm -hmm. exists until you get to, you know, somewhere that's like a hundred times or a thousand times greater than your investment. When really, if you were paying attention to it, you would have sold it at 10 to 50, right? So again, like, I think it's actually really important. Uh, I think it's a good move on Fidelity's part. I think there's a lot of demand. We've heard a lot of demand to put this sort of asset into 401ks and people do it through unconventional methods now. And, uh, to the earlier comment, I actually don't think this impacts Coinbase much. I think, again, Coinbase is nicely positioned to be the de facto option for a lot of this stuff. They have some problems. Uh, you know, there are some challenges. Like I'm still waiting to have a company, you know, get reviewed for a new corporate account almost a month after I put in the application. So again, like there are ways that I'd like them to improve, but at the same time, it's Coinbase's game to lose at this point. And Fidelity doing this just further mainstreams the concept and takes us towards. Bitcoin being boring. Oh, nice.
1: I think we got to wrap it there. On the hash, we like to wrap on a happy note. So that's it for the Tuesday. We had Mm -hmm. Will Foxley. Adam B. Levine and me, Jen Sinassi, the hash for your ears, for your eyes on Coindesk TV and the Coindesk Podcast Network. Stick around. Christine Lee will be live from the Bahamas at 3 p.m. for All About Bitcoin. I wish we were in the Bahamas, but you got us here in yeah, this that wonderful nice. <laughs> three box. Yeah, I know, right? Set, send us stuck to the Stuck in the three box. Yeah, stuck is, we're just <laughs> stuck here in this three box. Anyways, guys, we'll see you tomorrow